Well, Laura, we goofed. What we do now? In all the excitement of getting our first episode out, we kind of forgot to introduce ourselves. We surely did. Uh, I mean, we can't assume that everybody knows just who we are down at the foundation. Um, I, I'll start quickly. Um, I'm David. I've been here for over 10 years working in the marketing team. I take photos, do website stuff, online giving, emails. I just kind of run around and keep busy. And that's the way I like it. And we've been kind of working at the foundation about the same time. You are so oversimplifying who well, you are but. and what you do, but that's that's what you do. So I'm just going to leave that with you. Uh, you're like my work husband, David. That's true. I love we spend it. a lot of time together in the office. And we started around the same time yeah. here, which was great. You were one of the first friendly faces I knew here at the foundation. I honestly never thought I would find another group of people as passionate as the nurses I used to work with up at the hospital. There's just so much passion around Cardinal Glennon. And so I'm like, yeah, I mean, you you were at the hospital for how many years before coming down to the foundation? I mean, yeah, I've been at Glennon since 1990. And then uh, spent 20 years there at the hospital in nursing with various different roles. And then I came here to the dark side. In. This is not the dark side. Are you kidding? We get to have a blast It's a great here. side. It's yeah. a great side. No, we have a lot of fun on our team and we get to do a lot of awesome things and we get to engage with a lot of amazing people. Um, but like you've been at the hospital for, you know, longer than being at the foundation and you've known our next guest for quite a few years, right? Uh, yeah, probably over 20 because I knew her when she was a resident and she's all grown up now and doing like amazing things. Yeah. She's just an amazing person. And a, a lot of people, I don't think they don't realize kind of all of the ways that she's intertwined with the hospital and the history and the legacy of how it was founded. It's a lot there. And it's a really cool story. And I'll be honest with you, until I work for the foundation, I did not know the story oh, wow. of how we got here and about Dr. Peter Donnie and how him as a pediatrician growing up in St. Louis was pivotal for how we got here and how his passion was the beginnings of Cardinal Glennon. So anyway, when I found out that story and, you know, we talk about that a lot internally here, that was, I don't know, it was really inspiring to me. And I think it's a great story. It is the Glennon factor and it's something that we should share. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And uh, spoiler alert, we're getting ready to talk with Dr. Donnie's granddaughter, Dr. Heidi Sally. So I can't wait to get into that. Let's do it. You are a pediatrician. You are the medical director of Donnie Pediatrics. You are literally a walking, talking legacy of the beginnings of Cardinal Glennon Hospital. Mm -hmm. And that, that legacy, the vision, the philosophy of what families deserved then, your holistic approach to care now are really the foundation and the soul that we operate from. And we can't talk about all of the incredible stuff that happens and is felt throughout the hospital if we don't start with the basics of what a pediatric hospital should be. So we're going to get back to basics with Dr. Heidi Sally. It's <laughs> what we're doing. And we're having you as one of our first guests. Yes. So thanks for being with I'm us I'm so today. happy to be here. Okay, we're going to start out 
from the beginning. <laughs> what inspired you to become a pediatrician? So my grandfather was a pediatrician, and I'm sure there was part of that. He has a there's sort of a legend about him. I, I didn't know him very well, but always just heard, you know, all these amazing things. He's such a great doctor and he's so beloved and this and that and all of that. And so I'm sure that was a piece of it. Um, I also had an uncle. So that's then on the same, in the same side of my family. This is my mother's side of the family. My uncle was a pediatric surgeon here at Glennon and he was like my favorite uncle. I probably have other uncles who might listen to this podcast. I just realized they're all favorites. Yes, That's they're right. all favorites, right. especially Uncle Tim and Uncle Tom. <laughs> no, but when I was a child, we often we would we would stay. We I wasn't from here. I'm from California, and so we'd stay. I remember probably just in my formative years when I was eight or so, we spent a, probably a week staying with my aunt and uncle, my uncle Dick and my aunt Margot, and like his daughter taught me how to dive. But you know, he was he was just very kind to me always. Not that my other uncles weren't, they were, but I just got to know him probably a little bit better. Um, and he was a pediatric surgeon. I thought he was a pediatric neurosurgeon. So in fourth grade, I wanted to, I wrote an essay about how I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon because I wanted to be like him. Um, that did not happen. I have had, once I got closer, like into medical school, I'm like, I don't want to be a surgeon, much less a pediatric neurosurgeon. Um, but I always love kids. So I knew I wanted to do kid stuff, but uh, I really actually, as I was going into medical school, I was like, I want to do primary care. I and mean, just the philosophy of primary care, of prevention, of taking care of families over the course of time. So I, at the time, was thinking family medicine, pediatrics, or a combination of internal medicine and pediatrics. And as I was getting closer to picking a residency, I realized that, no, I only want to do kids. I don't really need to take care of adults. Um and so went into pediatrics and looked at residencies around mostly Midwest and then the West Coast and then went, but I really like Glennon. I didn't necessarily want to stay in St. Louis, but I really like Glennon. And I decided that for residency, three years of working 80 plus hours a week, because that was before they had duty hour rules for residents, that I had to know that I was going to be happy in the hospital. And I knew Glennon would give me that and that it would be an excellent training for somebody going into primary care pediatrics. So stayed here for residency. Then I um, had a National Health Service scholarship. So I had committed actually to primary care. I had two years to pay back on that. And so I went over to East St. Louis and worked in a community health center over there for five years, actually. And then my kids kept coming to Glendon for their checkups. And in the middle of a checkup, I was asked if I might be interested in applying for a job because general pediatrics had an opening. And I said, sure, applied, interviewed, and got the job 21 and a half years ago. And here I am. So for people who don't know the history of your grandfather and Cardinal Glennon, share that. Yes. So my grandfather was born in Canada and he was an only child and... I think, I can't remember all the order because I never heard it directly, but one of his parents died when he was very young, like two or three. I think it was his father who died. Then his mother died when he was five or six and he was being raised by his grandmother. And then she died when he was about 12. And he was sent to live with an aunt and uncle in Spokane, Washington, um, where one of the first people he met was Bing Crosby. Um, 
when they were, you know, young adolescents. And he, then he met, he met young Bing Crosby. He met young Bing oh Crosby. Yeah. Before he was famous or anything. You know, this is sort of family legend stuff too. So uh, some of it may or may not be as true as other parts of it. <laughs> but he ended up going to essentially the Gonzaga's version of SLU High. So he went to Gonzaga's, you know, um, college prep high school and then went on to Gonzaga and then came to St. Louis University for medical school. And he graduated in 1931. And he did a residency or an internship in um, St. Mary's Hospital. And that was back in the day when you'd usually do one year sort of general internship and go out and put out your shingle as a GP, you know, general practitioner. But um, they were starting a pediatrics residency and they had noted that he always had an affinity for children. And when there were children in the ER, they would call him down to come see them because he always did so great with children. So they asked him to stay on and be their first pediatrics resident, which he did and became a pediatrician. And then he... Um, you know, a few years later, 10 plus years later, was like, you know what? St. Louis University needs a children's hospital to teach pediatrics. It was a growing field. Um, and he he recognized the need for that. He also wanted to have a hospital for children that would take anybody, you know, because back in the day, you know, we didn't have things like Medicaid or other means of paying for if people didn't have money, they didn't get to go. If people's skin was a certain color, they didn't get to go to a hospital, you know, th different things like that. And he wanted a hospital for everybody. Um, so he had that idea, but then World War II happened. And so there were no resources to build a whole new hospital. Shortly after World War II, he, um, uh, card, or it was Archbishop Glennon at the time, went to Rome, was made a cardinal, went to Ireland, where he passed away. And he was evidently quite beloved in the St. Louis area. Um, and so then my grandfather went to now Archbishop Ritter and said, I know, you know, there's lots of talk about building a memorial to Cardinal Glennon. I would like to build... I would like to build a children's hospital, you know, for St. Louis University, and we could name it after him. It could be in his honor. And Archbishop Ritter said, sounds good. And they got to work earning, you know, raising funds. I mean, obviously, I've simplified it quite a bit. Um, but they were, from what I understand, collecting pennies from children at church on Sundays and, you know, lots of little bitty things to put money together to build this hospital for this community. And it was opened in 1956. And so we've been here ever since. And so he was the first chief of staff. You know, it obviously there's a, a picture of all the original staff hanging up in the doctor's lounge. And it's, I don't know, got like 20 people on it, maybe 30. It was a much smaller group of people back then. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, he started, he it was his idea and he got the ball rolling. So, so do you want to be chief of staff? Oh, gosh, now? no. <laughs> Medical director of my clinic is as far as I need to go. I like really being hands-on with my patients. I, I was I was in charge of the residency program, you know, so our training program, we have three years of training after medical school to become a pediatrician. And I was in charge of our program and we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 residents um, at a time they would rotate through. And it was great, but it was a lot of administrative work. Um 
And after about 11 years, I was like, no, I want to get back to doing more patient stuff. So I did that. And the medical directorship was open. And it was a way of even though maybe when I'm doing that work, I'm not directly face to face with patients in the same way, but I'm still more directly affecting their care by making decisions about how the clinic runs and things like that. So um, so no, I'm really not. If anything, I want to stop doing that and just do more patient care and be, spend more time in the clinic. I just love being with the patients more than anything else. So you talk about the clinic. Yeah. Donnie Pediatrics. Yes. So tell 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 the world, what, what is Donnie Pediatrics? I mean, it sounds like a, there may be a namesake in there, but yes. for those who don't understand what, what it is and what makes it different and special. Yeah. So Donnie Pediatrics at the at the kind of the core of it is for almost anybody who, you know, especially in the U.S. who have children and take their children to the doctor. We do primary care pediatrics there. That's the kind of medicine we do. So we do checkups. We measure kids' growth. We check their development. We see them for their colds and their ear infections and their asthma and, um, you know, mental health and ADHD and anxiety, depression, all of those things. We kind of do what your pediatrician does. And that's our medical part of it. But we also teach our medical, St. Louis University medical students. We have 180 medical students who rotate with us, with us every year, um, usually about five at a time for a week. And then we have, now we're up to 64 residents. So those are the people who graduated from medical school or spending three years with us training to be pediatricians. Um, so we also train those, the residents all spend a half a day a week with us. So they all kind of have their own day that they come in there throughout their three years, they spend a half a day a week with us. So we also have sometimes we have some PA students. We also have some nurse practitioner students. So education is a huge part of what we do. And we're a very large practice. So um, we have about somewhere 22 to 24,000 visits per year. Yeah, and it's it's not that big of a place. Like I, I've I've gotten the chance to be inside Donnie Pediatrics, taking photos of patients when we need to refresh materials. So it's it, it's it's not what you'd expect. But I mean, is it normal to have um, that level of care, like inside an actual hospital? Like we've got a full blown pediatrician's office that does so much more than that. But is that normal? So a lot of children's hospitals. There, there some do have primary care either in the building or right with their, their subspecialists, or maybe they have an affiliated, especially if they're a teaching hospital, though, they will need to have that affiliation with some primary care. There's a lot of different models, but not every children's hospital is going to have a robust primary care practice as a part of the hospital itself. So um, that's a little bit unique. Um, and, you know, we officially here in St. Louis have three children's hospitals and neither of them have the same kind of large scale pediatric practice. Um, they have their subspecialists or they have affiliated practices that are offsite. So we also, in addition to the space we have here at the hospital, we have an additional space that's at a, probably about the same size, maybe a little bit bigger, but same number of exam rooms um, at the corner of Arsenal and Kings Highway. So it's a couple miles away from here. So we actually have the two sites because we could not accommodate 24,000 visits in the space we have just here at the hospital. And all of the faculty physicians and our nurse practitioners go both places. We split our time between both. So beyond like the convenient medical benefits and the fact that it serves as a primary teaching site to train the residents. How does Donnie Pediatrics fulfill the vision, you think, of your grandfather and what he was hoping for? You know, you mentioned that he wanted anyone to be able to access 
healthcare. And so how, how does Donnie Pediatrics fit into that? Yeah. So we, um, first of all, we are always open to new patients. So we don't close our practice. You know, if you've ever looked for a new primary care doctor scrolling through online and you're like not taking new patients, not taking new patients, we are always taking new patients. So, and if we are getting full, whatever that means, then we make a plan to figure out and hire more people. Um, so that's a, that's a part of it. But another really big part is, is that we try to address what some people might refer to as social determinants of health. We know that living in certain situations or having certain difficulties in life, not just are difficult and hard, but they actually affect your health. And especially for developing children, it can really affect their health and affect their health in a very long-term sort of way with poorer health comes for chronic conditions and things like that. So by trying to help address that. So we ask all of our families when they come in, especially for checkups. So that's your one-year-old visit, your five-year-old visit, things like that when you're coming in for immunizations. We give them a questionnaire and it asks questions about things like, you know, do you have a secure housing? Do you have trouble with transportation? Are you able to, you know, do you have any trouble with making ends meet at the end of the month? Are you worried that food's going to run out at the end of the month? Do you need help with, do you have a safe place for your baby to sleep? Do you have a crib for your baby? Um, do you need a gun lock? You know, we kind of, and then we ask a couple of questions also about the parent or the caregiver, whoever that happens to be with the child that day, um, about their mental health and um, screening them for a, for depression. There's a couple of questions about that, as well as screening for concerns with like intimate partner or domestic violence. And if any, if they answer yes to any, oh, if they want to quit smoking, would they like help with that? Any of those questions that they answer yes, we have... Um, we we call family navigators. They're kind of like social workers, but they're not actually social workers, but they can help connect families with resources in the community. Um, through Cardinal Glennon, we have connections with some of the um, patient safety kind of things. So we have um, injury prevention is what it's called, the injury prevention program, which is we can actually, and I had this just earlier this week or last week where a mom had a four-month-old they had a bassinet, but the baby's getting bigger, starting to learn to, you know, sit up, hold the head up. And really around four months of age, they need to be in either a crib or a pack and play. And this mom didn't have that. And she didn't have the resources. She was really, really struggling um, to go out and just buy one. And so she left clinic with a new pack and play in her little wagon that, you know, we have here at the hospital. Um, there's also, you know, somebody's growing out of their car seat or something happened to the car seat and they need a new car seat. Um, then they can, we, every child's eligible to get a car seat. Um, so we have that through our injury, injury prevention program. We have a diaper bank in our clinic. So anytime they come in, if they have a need, we can give them a pack of diapers. We usually have formula samples to help with that. Um, we have working with, I think it's operation food search. Um, but we have, um, some meal kits, which, um, is, you know, it's, canned and and usually noodles or something to go with it but it would prepare it would be easy to prepare a meal for a family of four so that if they don't have food for that night they can go home with dinner um so we have a lot of those things and then but the key is not just here's a band-aid you know here's a set of diapers so you can make it through the week 
things like that. But the key really is, is then also connecting them with, there's a lot of community diaper banks. The libraries often have diaper banks or days that they give out diapers or here's where they have resources in the community for people who have housing problem. Here's how you get in touch with Gateway 180 or, you know, here's how you might go applying for Section 8 housing, different things like that. Oh, you're having trouble getting on WIC. Let's help you with that. You're having trouble with your Medicaid. Let's help you with that so that we can keep kids connected to healthcare and keep them well more than just here's your shot. I'm glad you're not going to get polio. Um, but really kind of looking at the family unit as a whole. So you've really kind of given this umbrella of services a name, yes? Yes, yes. So it is called Donnie Cares. Um, so the Donnie name, obviously my grandfather's last name is Donnie. So he's the one who started the hospital. My uncles had a huge fundraiser, um, I want to say for their 65th birthday. Now, these are my other two uncles, Tim and Tom who are also my favorite uncles. It's kind of like having favorite children. All my uncles are my favorite. We love uncles. So I really do. Tim and Tom are incredibly supportive of the hospital as a whole and of our clinic. So they are twins and they had a big birthday party. I want to say their 65th birthday party brought in a famous comedian and raised a lot of money and they didn't have a plan for it. So this is my recollection of how it came to be. Now they may have a different story and maybe what I'm remembering isn't quite right, but my memory was, I said, you know, uncle Tom, uncle Tim, daddy Pete, that's what we called my grandfather's name was Peter Donning, but we called him daddy Pete. So daddy Pete was a primary care doctor. That's what he did. So maybe you could donate all this money to our clinic. And they actually, I mean, they weren't, it was a fundraiser for Cardinal Glennon. So, you know, it wasn't, it, it was already, they just hadn't earmarked it for anything in particular. So they did earmark it for us and we changed the name of the clinic to Donnie Pediatric Center. And so that would have been, without getting their age away, probably more than 10 years ago, I'll say. Um, so we've been Donnie Pediatrics since then. And then the Donnie Cares. So Donnie is just the name because it's our clinic name. That's how we're known. And the Cares is Community Advocacy and Resources Education or something like that. I cannot remember. It's a nice acronym. Though. Yeah, it works out really well because it sounds good, but it's about the community and again, connecting people with resources and advocating for our patients. Those are the key and it's not just elements. resources within the hospital. Like the whole the whole point is to even if we can't provide it specifically within the hospital, you put them in touch with right. somebody in the community. So it's a yes. partnership. Yeah. And then those people, those family navigators will reach out to the family in a couple of weeks and make sure they got connected. And if say, because those people are, you know, our Donnie Cares folks, they're humans too. They take a vacation, they have a sick day, they're not available. I can put an order in for them. And if so, if in the moment they can't help in the moment, then they'll follow up in a day or two and reach out to the family and provide those same resources, you know, over the phone um, or connect with them the next time they come into the clinic um, and things like that. So Because needs like this aren't one and done. Oh, no. Right? Definitely not. It is. It really is. Yeah. Which I think would be why... Many other primary health care offices can't or probably don't ask these questions because the connections aren't there. The people aren't there right. necessarily to provide that help. So it's hard to ask the questions when you can't provide right. the support. And there were two sort of things that got us started. One was there was a recommendation um, in the pediatric world to screen mothers for postpartum depression. 
And one of my partners suggested that we do that. And the rest of the group kind of went, what if they say they're depressed? Then what do we do? You know, because then there's even a question on that screening questionnaire about being suicidal. Like that's scary to ask that question. Um, so they, that particular, um, faculty member got, um, it was Matt Broom, um, who has moved on to, uh, very large administrative roles. Um, but he's not in our clinic, but he did get us started with this and, um, got a grant to bring in a social worker specifically to work with moms and that evolved. And then we had another two faculty members, Dr. Josh Arthur, and Dr. Jean Labarge, who um, got a different grant to address some of those social determinants of health. So asking about the housing, asking about utilities and all that other kind of thing. And um, also then that's where the family navigators came in. And then the programs kind of gradually sort of overlapped a lot. And we incorporated it into one program that we now call Donnie Cares. And then we went to the foundation and said, well, we've had our pilot funding to get some of these things started, but we need a little more pilot funding to continue them for, I think we got it for two or three more years that the foundation, and now it's been worked into our budget. But a lot of private pediatricians, smaller offices are not going to be able to afford to hire a social worker to do this kind of work, um, especially for you know, postpartum depression and those types of things, you really need somebody who really is a social worker and has that kind of background, um, which we do also have social workers. Um, we actually are, we are very blessed in terms of the resources we have because the Donnie Cares is just one of the resources. We also have a behavioral health consultant who's a licensed clinical social worker who helps our families when children are having behavior kind of problems. She can do assessments. She can help work with the schools to figure out what's going on. Are they getting their needs met at school? Different things along those lines. So we have her. We have a regular social worker who just helps with all the crises that we have, you know, that come up here and there. Um, so we have a very robust support group behind the physicians and the nurse practitioners in our PA. So we're very lucky that way. And the whole thing, I don't know, to me, it's just, it's like psychology 101, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. you know, you got to meet people at yeah. that base of the pyramid, right? right? And where they're at and tackle those things before people can have yeah. conversations about higher level things Absolutely. and higher level healthcare and things like that. Yeah. And a lot of people, especially people in our community and surrounding community, a lot of the population of families that take, uh, bring their kids mm -hmm. to Donnie Pediatrics have those yeah. barriers to healthcare, right? And the thing is, you can't look at somebody and know what their needs are either. So I brought my kids to Donnie Pediatrics. Now they're grown, so none of these were in place at the time. But some of my younger colleagues, their kids come here, our nursing staff bring kids. You know, we have lots of, we have our close connection with St. Louis University. So we see St. Louis University families and they may or may not have those needs, but everybody gets the questionnaire. It doesn't matter who you are. And you might have a need, right? That, you know, you're you're not going to bring up because maybe you don't, you're not comfortable with it, you know, in terms of talking talking about it but man somebody asked you a question on a paper i can check that box easy yeah do people do people like the first time they come in do they fill out that questionnaire or does it take them some time to i've maybe had one or two families that are like oh, i don't want to fill this out I said, don't fill it out then you know you know what we have to offer you've been here many times if you don't want to fill the questionnaire out it's fine you know it's not like it's mandatory but we offer it to everybody at every well child so babies come in at 
you know, a few days after birth and then usually a week later and then at two weeks and a month and two, four, six, nine, 12, 15, 18 months, and then at two and two and a half and three. And then from there, it's once a year. Um, so if you have a couple of little kids, you're coming in quite a lot. Um, but, you know, doesn't seem to bother anybody to fill it out. And sometimes at the bottom, it says, is there anything else we can help you with? And much of the time, it's like, no, thank you for asking in a little smiley face. Or I had one mom who checked off that they had some food and financial insecurity. And then at the bottom, she said, no, thank you. And then I brought her um, one of those dinner packs. And she's like, oh, I don't, there's other people who need this more than I do. And I'm like, you're a grandmother raising your two teenage kids like no you need this too but she was she was like no really we're blessed and i'm like wow that's amazing so you know um it's it's not it has it's very rare that it is bothersome to anything i think most people if they don't have a need they know that other people do and so they're grateful that we're trying to help address those concerns it's really a such a holistic and family approach to care, like not, you know, it's pediatric primary care, yes, but it's really caring for the whole family. You're taking a responsibility of taking care of the family just as much as well, and taking that, care of the patient. Yeah. And the mom that I mentioned who went home with the pack in place, she also said that she was having trouble because of her struggles in life, that she was, um, she had lost both of her parents. She was sort of estranged from her siblings. I, you know, I don't know why or what the circumstances were, but it was clearly bothersome to her. She had two very young children that she was trying to raise and she was really struggling. She was approved for Section 8 housing, but didn't have it yet. And, you know, and she's like, I'm just feeling like depressed. And I said, well, you know, do you, would you like us to help get you connected with some resources for you? And she said, well, I used to see a counselor at birthright, but then I quit going. And I said, was it helpful? Yeah, I think it was. Would you like to get reconnected? Yes. And so I brought our social worker in to help get her connected with some of those resources. But I told her, I said, it's important for us to help take care of you so that you can be a good mom because that's good for your kids, you know. But, um, you know, so when you put it all together, it's it's really nice to, you know, even just for a moment, if you can make somebody's day just a little bit better. And even outside that context, anywhere I am, if I've made somebody's day just a little bit better, then that's a good day. For sure. For sure. Talk about some of the other services. There's some other. So Donnie Cares is amazing. Um, but we should talk about some of the other programs Absolutely. and services that are part of yeah. Donnie Pediatrics. Yeah. Also. So we have um, another one that I think is unique to our practice is our, um, now it's a refugee service. So medical um, services for families that are refugees and new to the St. Louis area. Um, and Jenny, Dr. Jenny Ladage um, is in charge of that program. She has a social worker and two nurses who work with her, and they really help to bring families in who have who are new to the U.S. again, who are getting settled, to really do a comprehensive evaluation of the children. What are their medical needs? A lot of them have medical needs that haven't been addressed for a long time because it's usually you know, they left their country of origin. They were in a refugee camp for a period of time. They came to the U.S. They were in somewhere else temporary while the things were getting cleared. And then they got resettled into St. Louis area. And so, 
you know, a lot of times they're, they may not have their immunizations up to date. They may have unmet medical needs. So she really does a very in-depth assessment and then working to meet their medical needs and work with the family. She and her staff will go actually do home visits um, to kind of see what's needed in the home, especially for kids with, with more medical needs to make sure that they're um, being met. And um, so that's a really, really cool kind of niche thing that is not at, you know, every run of the mill, you know, or even not run of the mill, but it's just not, you know, there's a couple other places that do it, but really pretty unique to us. And um, when you combine it with some of the other things like the Donnie Cares is available to them as well, it just adds another layer of support to those families. Um, and then we have uh, Fostering Healthy Children, which is for children up to age 12 who are in the Missouri foster care system. Um, they come in and they get their initial evaluation um they have to have an evaluation when they come into foster care within 24 hours. So that will sometimes happen in an urgent care or an emergency, but then emergency room, but then they need to have um, an, a comprehensive evaluation done uh, about 30 days in. And so they'll come and do that. And a lot of them, depending on their foster parent, depending on where they live, but many of them will then continue to have their primary care at Donnie Pediatrics you know, throughout their stay, or some of them were our patients already. And so they stay with us. Um, but they really help to make sure those, the children within foster care system need more frequent visits. So if they are, you know, at the normal age where you'd be doing once a year visits, you do twice a year visits, um, just to make sure that you're keeping up. But the main thing is, I was also trying to go like, you know, is this a child who has asthma? Do they have their medicines? Does the foster family know how to administer the medications, things like that? Or, you know, children who have more complex medical needs, do they have all the medications and how to, you know, use them and things and provide, and they provide support. And so within that system as well, um, within the Fostering Healthy Children program, they also have special nurses that are for their program as well as a social worker. So while, if I'm understanding correctly then, so while a child might change foster homes throughout their life, if they've had their initial exam and comprehensive exam through Donnie Pediatrics and Fostering Healthy Children, Colonel Glennon kind of becomes their primary medical home. It certainly can, you know, depending, of course, on if it's a family who, you know, they have a relationship with another pediatrician, it is the the foster family's choice to take them elsewhere. But, you know, we do have the electronic health record and even pediatricians who don't have, um, you know, don't use our record will have, can they can get access to our records and stuff so that they can see what's been done in the past to help with that continuity of care for the patient. Um, so yeah, they have, they have that and they're more than welcome to continue to get their care. And many of them choose that, but it's really up to the foster parent in terms of where is, you know, what's convenient and, and works for them. It's probably nice to have that continuity for the patient, though. I mean, if they're mm -hmm. if they're potentially switching between different families, the one constant can be absolutely. Cardinal Glennon for them, which yeah, would be absolutely. a support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also for for the foster parents, they kind of it's nice for them to bring children to a pediatrician who knows their history and has their records and all of that. Who know, who know. knows them right. personally? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so like. Good, better, best. I feel like we have best, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> what we'll, we strive for. But we should for. always aim high, right? Yes. So, so let's just call it better for yes. right now. So, right. how um, how can better be made better? Yeah. In other words, like 
So we're getting ready to build a whole new hospital. Yes, which right? is exciting. Spoiler alert. Yes. I know. <laughs> it has to be surreal for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. And there's, you know, I'm, I'm super excited about our growth. I think it's wonderful. And there, with hospitals, especially, and all the technology that goes into a hospital, at the same time, you, you do outgrow that, right? And you can only remodel so much. So, you know, at some point you need to say, okay, we're done with this physical building. We need to start fresh. And that's really where we are. Um, from the standpoint of the primary care and Donnie Pediatrics, we do sort of have that a little bit in our Tower Grove site, which again is at Arsenal and Kings Highway. It was a Walgreens building before and we completely redid it. And so we've only built out half that building. So the other half is shell space and it's open. So I literally have a notebook where I have what I call my Tower Grove wish list. So what's on the list? list? Yeah. So one things we've been talking a little bit about is getting a WIC office. So that's um, where children can get um, assessed by a dietitian under age five, you know, if they have certain economic constraints that, that, that qualifies them for WIC and it, they get their coupons or it's not even, I say coupons, but it's not coupons anymore. I think it's a debit card, but for buying formula and buying other supplemental foods. And then as they get into, you know, the one to five-year-olds, then they, you know, they get money for food to, to help supplement the family, but for that child to have good nutrition, but they have dietitians. So we were looking into maybe, could we get a WIC office? I would love to just have a standalone dietitian. Um, you know, there's a lot of needs there, um, both for children who maybe I don't always know the right, and I know what the right terms are, the medical terms, overweight, obese. I hate using those words, but who maybe are way more than we would like them to weigh for how tall they are, um, and things like that. Or children who are underweight may need, need to see a dietitian. So I'd love that. Mental health, huge. I would love if we could have, you know, build out some space for maybe a full-time psychologist. Not sure where we'd get a full-time psychologist because they're in short supply, you know, but, or, and, or more social workers, you know, it's, it's really those. And then of course, building more space, because I think we will see more growth with our patients. We will see an increase in the number of patients coming because we just always do year over year. And so I'd really like to, you know, I think we'll need more exam rooms there. Um, you know, our residency program has grown, um, when I was a resident in 95 to 98, we had 13 residents per year. We now have 20 residents per year. Oh, wow. And like I mentioned earlier, every resident spends a half a day a week with us every single day, week of the whole year for the most part. And so when you have more people, you need more space. So, and the medical school has grown as well. When I was a medical student, I think a class size was about 140. I think we're about to 180. So, you know, and we certainly know that we talked about the, dearth of primary care, there's not enough out there, um, that um, we probably need to grow our medical schools. Um, and we need to um, demonstrate what a great role primary care has to encourage more people to go into primary care. Um, because I promise you, I will retire one day. <laughs> I have other things I want to do in life. So talk to me about the need, you know, you said we need more and more primary care. And I know there's a vast array of patients that come through Donnie Pediatrics, but you know, when, when a WIC office is on the wish list, right? So talk to me about the needs that we see here in our own community. Like what, what does that look like? What is the patient population or what is the bulk of what you feel like you see? So about 80% of our patients are on Medicaid. 
Um, so that means they're either at or below the poverty level or just barely over it. And if you look up the poverty, what's the poverty level for Missouri for a family of four, what that income looks like, it's very, very, it's poverty. Um, so, you know, these oftentimes it's, it's things like they don't have good transportation. And so having like a WIC office where your pediatrician is, it's one less place you have to go. You know, if your car's on the fritz or you have to take a bus and it's raining and you've got three kids with you, you know, so that's where some of those kind of needs. Again, I think with mental health, one of the things that we struggle with, this is not unique to our patients. I think this is across the board. There's still a huge stigma around seeking care for mental health. But when I can say, I know this psychologist he or she is one of my partners, essentially. It's a part of our practice. Maybe they can even come meet you while you're here right now versus here's a list of some psychologists. Have fun giving them a call. And then they call and they're told, we're not, we're so busy, we're not even keeping a waiting list. You know, so it's those kind of things um, that I think are really important for, you know, again, that that comprehensive care, but making it easier for any and all patients to access the care that they need and making it simple for them. So it's not 500 phone calls, it's one phone call. Or, you know, right now we do have our behavioral health consultant and we do have a psychologist with Glennon who works with our patients. And it's really nice. I can tell the families, I'm going to put in a referral and somebody will call you within a week. And that is what happens, you know, but we have a bigger need than what we're meeting right now. Um, so those are the kind of things is, is that recognizing how challenging it life can be for our families. And so how can we make it just a little bit easier? How can we um, make that more smooth and that continuity of care across? And then also, like, for example, our psychologist that we're working with right now, it's great because she has somebody that she's worried about who has an appointment with me. She'll chat with me about it ahead of time so that I get a, you know, real time up to date. Here's what's going on with your patient so that when I go in the room, you know, we can kind of take up from where they left off and I can help, you know, with whatever, you know, means I can help with. But having those really close physical, like you're physically in the same space kind of relationship just makes it all that much easier. Just making it that one-stop shop because exactly. if you make it that convenient, then people are more likely to actually take advantage yeah. of those resources. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the appeal for some of our patients who do have really complex medical needs. So the kids who've graduated from the NICU, who, you know, have a lot of equip medical equipment that they go home with and things, they like coming to Donnie Pediatrics, especially the site here at the hospital, because their specialist is just down the hall. And if I have a question about somebody's G-tube, their feeding tube that's in their stomach, I can call the gastroenterologist or the surgeon and say, hey, this is going wrong. What would you recommend? And sometimes they'll be like, we'll just come down and see them. Um, you know, so that kind of thing, or, uh, you know, I had a, a kid who's got pretty severe asthma and had been coughing for three weeks and wasn't getting better and was using a lot of her rescue medicine. So we called the allergist and got, yes, here, do this, this, and this, and we'll see him in two weeks or, you know, that kind of thing is, it's really, really nice to have that close connection with our specialists as well. And it's very personal, like that also is a personal professional relationship in that, you know, when I go to the cafeteria or walk around the hospital, I'm seeing them, we stop and have a conversation. So, you know, it's not somebody I don't know that I'm calling up to ask a question of. For sure. I feel like your grandfather had intentionality behind the responsibility 
that he found to families and to medical students. And he fulfilled that with his passion to build our original hospital. And I am curious what you feel our future responsibility is for the next 70 years, uh, be that to the future generation of pediatricians or to families. Where do you think we're headed? What What is our responsibility now? Well, I think a lot of what we've already talked about is, you know, so I said something about polio, right? We don't see polio in the United States anymore. When I was a medical student, um, one of the pediatricians who was doing a talk on what we call anticipatory guidance. So that's when you go to the pediatrician and he reminds you or she reminds you, make sure you're brushing your teeth. You need to go to the dentist, wear your seatbelt, you know, put all the chokeable things up high, all that kind of stuff. And he, he was doing a talk about what we need to talk about, you know, to the medical students and why we do anticipatory guidance and preventative start, measures, you know, the preventative stuff. Right. And he said, we've basic, he goes, as pediatricians, we have immunized ourselves out of a job. Um, you know, so if you go back to the kind of medicine that my grandfather was practicing, it was mostly infectious disease. I honestly write more prescriptions for SSRIs, which are medications for anxiety and for depression than I do for amoxicillin, which is for an ear infection or strep throat. I just, you know, we've gotten immunizations that even help prevent ear infections. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So the face of medicine has really changed. So it's, and then we, you know, where the social determinants of health came out of is also what people refer to as ACEs, which is also stands for adverse childhood events. So that might be your parents got divorced, you were homeless for a period of time, different things like that, that are very significant adverse events. And we know the people who experience more of those go on to have more chronic conditions, poorer outcomes of their chronic conditions, even shorter lifespans and things like that. And we know that people who experience those things, but in the context of resilience and they have resiliency in their family and they're taught resiliency, that negates it. And so then they have better health outcomes. They have longer lives, they're healthier lives and things like that. So by addressing these things, we're not necessarily teaching the families resilience, but that might be the next stage is how do we promote resilience in families so that when those bad things do happen, we can recover better from them. And, you know, it's, it's things like cancer, like literally better cancer outcomes if you have less of those events. It's not to say that it will cure your cancer. It won't cure your cancer. You still need medicine. But, you know, it, when you look at populations of people that you see that, so um, higher rates of cancer, higher rates of asthma, higher rates of heart disease in people who, um, you know, had these adverse child events. So that's what we're trying to do is to sort of reverse that trend. And in order to really do that and to build that resiliency, because right, as a mother maybe who experienced a lot of trauma in her childhood or a father who did, they may not have the tools to teach that resiliency to their child, but perhaps a behavioral health specialist could help them to learn how to teach their child those things um, and help the child themselves directly, you know, it kind of goes both ways. So, um, you know, and just to help again, making sure you have adequate housing, you know, if you have a safe place to live, that's going to help. That's one less adverse childhood event to affect your health down the road. At the end of the day, What's a job well done for Heidi Sally? 
I kind of mentioned it, like literally I made somebody's day a little bit better, but that's, I mean, so I have, you know, certain tasks or assignments each day. I have a certain sort of schedule. Tuesdays, I'm generally in our primary care clinic all day long. Those are my good days. I love at the end of the day, yeah, when I'm seeing patients and I go home and I'm like, ah, I saw this kid and here's what happened. Or, you know, kid came in for follow-up and now their asthma is better or they're, you know, we helped work on getting them into some therapy and now, you know, they're able to return to school, their anxiety is under better control or, you know, those things are just, you know, those little things, those, those things that you can see where you made a little difference. And sometimes it's giving that one mom, right? When I gave her the meal and she said, I don't really need this. Somebody else might need this more. I was like, no, this re- that's what I remember about that day. I don't remember anything else about that day. It was probably five years ago. But like, you remember those things and you go home and you're like, you know, I made that grandma who's working so hard and trying so hard to raise her grandchildren. You know, I didn't fix her problems at all. I gave her a meal. So she has one meal tonight. But you know what you did is you acknowledged her problem. Yeah. It's back to when, Laura, I think when you mentioned about making better, better, like these people are doing their best, but you and all of your team at Donnie Peds are also helping their best, if possible, be even a little better. Right. There's a common humanity in all of this, especially as parents, that the main thing you want for your child is to be happy. You want your kid to be happy. And my kids are now in their 20s. You also want them to support themselves eventually, but you want them to be happy. And that's really it. And sometimes as parents, we're good at that and we we great. And some parents, because of a variety of reasons, don't have as much capability to meet all their kids' needs, all their child's needs. And it's not because they don't want to. It's because of other obstacles in their lives. I feel like, you know, it's so interesting. You talked about the residents and and grooming this next generation of pediatricians to want to be general pediatricians, right? And and to me, this is just as exciting and life saving in the nine the non nine one one way, right? You know, because if you think about, you know, not to uh, diminish or dilute, you know, any of the other fields of medicine. But when a child comes in with heart symptoms or a child comes in with something obvious, right. You know, it's like, boom, okay, there's the symptoms. Let's do it this way. Let's treat it this way. Let's address it this way. Versus some of these things, you have to ask the questions and you have to uncover and kind of like peel the layers of the onion, right? The symptoms and, aren't self-evident. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not And obvious. sometimes they're not even not obvious. The parents sometimes are actively trying to not, you know, because they're afraid. Like if I don't have enough food on the table, I don't want to tell my pediatrician that, you know, because maybe I'll get in trouble or whatever. Or they'll take my kids away. And of course, like, that actually is very unlikely to happen. But if we know about it, we can help. But if we don't ask, they're not going to volunteer that stuff very often. You know, whereas a kid falls down, breaks an arm, they're going to go seek help for that. Um, But it is, it's very different. And then with regards to education, the students and the residents, like medicine's going to change, right? I mean, Laura, you've known me for 20 more plus years. I don't even know how many of the plus, but you've known me for a long time, right? If you were still a nurse on Four North and I was still a resident up there and we were treating the kids with cancer the way we did back then, mm-hmm. everybody would be rolling their eyes at us and saying, you're a terrible nurse and a terrible right. doctor. Right. So the medicine I'm teaching them is important, 
But the thing that's really important is how to care for patients because that won't change. But what will change is the medicine, like things like how do we treat RSV? We used to give kids albuterol and steroids, which is how we treat asthma. And then we realized, huh, that doesn't work. And so now we give them oxygen and that's all and fluids or food, you know, but it's really the supportive care. But somebody thought, are we doing this right? And did a study and said, you know what? This doesn't make a difference. So let's do it differently. So you can't just learn rote. How do I treat an ear infection? How, you know, what vaccines? There's so many more vaccines than when I was in training. So it's, I want people to leave our program with the understanding of how to care for patients and how to empathize with them, how to understand that they are coming from a place that, you know, you don't, you don't understand, actually, you have no idea where they're coming from, and that you can't judge them for, you know, anything, you know, they're just trying to do the best they can. Right, right. If you had to explain to someone who doesn't know Glennon, what the secret sauce (laughs) of Cardinal Glennon is, what would you say? When I come in in the morning, if I come in through the main hospital, I have to walk through the whole hospital to get back to where our office and our clinic is, right? And not I'm, that you're complaining about that. I am it. not. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Actually, when they're talking about the new hospital and they ask me, like, what are our needs? I'm like, can we please be next to a parking lot? That's all I want. That's really literally the quick office. Exactly. (laughs) No, but, you know, I'll walk by the person at the front desk. She used to work in the cafeteria and she stocked the faculty lounge. And so I would stop and chat with her. Well, now she's at the front desk and she's always like, hey, Dr. Sally. I'm like, hey, Valerie. You know, and then I walk a little further and I see somebody else I know. And then I walk further. And I, I mean, if I want to get somewhere quickly, it does not happen, right? You know, and sometimes it's the people who keep our floors clean, which, you know, you got to have a clean hospital. Those people are super important. There's a woman named Donna who works up in the operating room who says hello to me every time I see her from across the hall, you know, but it's like the people care and people are here for a really long time. Like, we have been knowing each other for a really long time, but there mm-hmm. are people that have been here longer than longer us. Than us. We mm-hmm. are not necessarily the older people. <laughs> At least I want to tell myself that. <laughs> right. But there is a there is that long term connection and that, you know, commitment to doing more than just the medicine, um, you know, for the patients to truly caring for our patients. And, you know, I think that that just that continues and it hasn't, you know, even though we've grown it, we haven't lost that. So, you know, in terms of looking in the future, I see us growing and we need to hold on to that, that, you know, looking at the whole patient and taking the time and the care and the listening, you know, that's the, that's what we need to keep doing. Well, we could sit and talk for hours and hours and hours, but I know you have patients to get to and things to do. So, but I hope that retirement day that you talked about (laughs) doesn't happen for a really, really long time. Yeah, if it's... I'm going to have to wean. (laughs) It's going to be like, I'll work four days a week for a little while. Love it. I love it. Well, thank you for being with us. Oh, so happy to. You can have me come back anytime. We will. We'll do that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Glennon Factor. Make sure you follow The Glennon Factor and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Visit glennon.org if you would like to learn more about how you can support Cardinal Glennon kids. And while you're there, feel free to share any feedback or episode suggestions on our podcast page. The Glennon Factor is recorded and produced by SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Foundation. 
One's been a nurse, the other one is not. One of these one things, things is, is not, not like, like the other. other one. one of these things. <laughs>